Well, it's a great privilege uh, to be with you, and uh, it's my first time in, in Arizona, and obviously then the first time in Phoenix. And uh, it's a great uh, joy to be able to come and uh, think about how we can retrieve the past. Uh, one of uh, my interests as a young boy growing up was what we call time travel. And uh, you have space travel, and you have these uh, series. It used to be actually a show in the 1960s called Time Tunnel. And you'd have these people that go back into the past, and uh, little decisions would change the past. And uh, in the last probably 30, 40 years, there's been a, a type of history, and if it's done well, it's very, very, very good. It's what we call counterfactual history. So, what if uh, Adolf Hitler had invaded Britain in 1940? He hadn't waited to clear the skies of the RAF, but had decided to launch an invasion of Britain. Uh, what would history look like today? Or what would Robert E. Lee, if he hadn't uh, made a couple of fundamental mistakes uh, during the Battle of Gettysburg in July of 1863, had won that battle, and the road was open to Washington, D.C., what would the United States look like? Uh, today. Or what if Martin Luther in July of 1505 had not run into a thunderstorm, which led to his decision to become a monk in the monastery of Erfurt? What if that had not taken place? Now, as a believer in the sovereignty of God, I do believe that the time was ripe for God to raise up someone uh, to do something about the state of the church in uh, the late medieval world. And so it'd be easy to say, well, God would, would have acted despite the fact that maybe Martin Luther wasn't on hand. But there's a, there's a tension here. There's a, a, uh, a mystery of the providence of God and the reality of human choice and human responsibility. And I'm really not certain after spending the best part of 40 years as a church historian uh, that I can lay it all out in a fashion that will satisfy my reason and your reason, uh, just as there is no way I can explain to you how it is that there are Within the one Godhead, three perfect, fully equal persons who share fully the divine being, and yet they are three. Nor can I fully explain to you how it is that the man Christ Jesus, who was crucified outside of Jerusalem and Golgotha, is also the God who held together heaven and earth, and as they nailed him to the cross, it was his very divine power who gave strength to those who nailed him to that cross, gave them breath. And at the very time he was dying on the cross, he was sustaining the galaxies of this universe uh, and uh, so on. And so the, there's a mystery between uh, the sovereignty of God in history and uh, human choice and human actions. But make no mistake, one of the great biblical themes of 
The study of history is this, that human beings matter. And there have been those who've said, well, the critical thing in history are ideas. Well, ideas are important, but they're only important insofar as they lay hold of the hearts and minds of human beings and energize them. Justification by faith alone that we're considering today is an absolutely vital idea in the life of the church. But it's only vital insofar as men and women embrace it and live out their lives on the basis of it. One of the great principles of, uh, of history is that God acts through individuals. And so today we want to think a little bit about the impact of Martin Luther. There'll be a little bit of overlap with uh, Dr. Arnold's uh, message, but really I want to focus on what did the gospel, uh, justification by faith alone, to mean to Luther? How did it affect his life, and then how did that really kind of affect our lives? And really change the entire course of history. A number of years ago, one of the historians I have great respect for, and thus I say the following remarks with a degree of respect, Mark Knoll, who taught for many years at Wheaton and then went to Notre Dame as a very distinguished professor. He's had a very distinguished career. He's probably on the edge of retirement. He wrote a book called, Is the Reformation Over? And uh, I had the distinct feeling when I picked up the book, I already knew the answer that he had, and his answer was, yes, it's over. It was important in its day, in a day in which uh, there was a monopoly on truth, as it were. Uh, one body, the Roman Catholic Church, controlled the destinies of multitudes of men and women in Western Europe. Uh, they dictated the way in which men and women could be saved. They were ways that really went against the gospel. And it was very necessary for the progress of the gospel for men like Luther and then Calvin and uh, Theodore Beza and Johann Eucolampadius and a host of others to stand against Rome, lose everything that they had in, in a worldly sense, be cast out of the Church of Rome for the sake of the gospel. Mark Knoll goes on to say, well, we live in a very, very different scenario. Rome is no longer the dominant political power in the Western world. Rather, we face secularism, a materialism, uh, atheism. One thinks of Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, etc., a uh, resurgent Islam. These are very, very different problems. And what we need to do is make common cause with as many friends as we can. And Roman Catholics, after all, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ's deity. They believe in the Trinity. They believe in an inerrant Bible. They may qualify it to some degree with tradition, but there are so many areas in which we agree with them. Surely we must make common cause. Well, I think as you look at the course of the church in the last 500 years, and uh, though we do live in a very different situation, we, do, we don't live in the days of the Reformers, nonetheless, those great truths of the Reformers are still necessary for us to herald in our day. I want to take you initially 
to a room. It's the year 1724. It's very far removed from Luther's Germany. He lived his most of his life in what we call Eastern Germany now. Uh, during the communist regime, it was part of the block behind the communist curtain, East Germany. Rather, we're in the city of London in the home of a man named Thomas Guy. He's in his 70s. He was born in 1645. Uh, the year is 1724. Uh, he's drawing up his will, his last will and testament. It used to be the case that last wills and testaments uh, were uh, a fabulous opportunity for Christians to make a Christian witness. It's an opportunity as Christians leave this world to make a final testimony about their, their faith. He was uh, extremely wealthy. He had been a bookseller in his day, a seller and printer of Bibles, and had earned really close to what we would describe today as billions. He was probably a billionaire. He had been a prominent philanthropist. One of his gifts, and the one that is still going on today, is he donated, this is uh, uh, early 18th century currency, he donated 219,000 pounds to a hospital called Guy's Hospital, named after him. Still is in London. It's one of the most prestigious hospitals in London. But you think about it, 219,000 pounds. To get a current equivalent, you're probably going to have to multiply somewhere between 800 to 1,000 to get that. So it's probably 219 million pounds, which you need to double to get dollars. So it's uh, probably about $500 million. Uh, that's just one gift. He had given. His life had been a life of good works. He was a Baptist believer. He was a godly man. And as he draws up his will, though, his gaze could easily have been upon his good works. Uh, I've lived a good life. I have loved the Lord. I've shown that by the use of my money in his service and for his church and for his people and for good works for those outside. The, a hospital was not simply to treat believers. But that's not where his gaze is. In his uh, will, as he writes it, he writes these words, I commend my soul to Almighty God in hopes through his mercy and the merits of my Savior Jesus Christ to enjoy eternal rest. It's that little phrase, the merits of my Savior Jesus Christ. It's not through the merits of my Savior Jesus Christ and my good works, but because of His life, His righteousness, His goodness, what He had done. And uh, Thomas Guy's life is linked intricately with the man that we want to look at tonight, Tom Martin Luther. If it had not been for the pathfinder of the Reformation, in one sense, humanly speaking, if it hadn't been for Luther's stand for the gospel, in a very different context in a very different country, Thomas Guy's last will and testament might have read quite differently. It was Luther who we talk about as rediscovering the gospel, rediscovering the gospel of justification by faith. He's described as a pathfinder. He, he loved that image, you know, of the man who goes out in the bush 
and with a machete, he didn't use those terms, but with a machete or an axe, the, the bush is filled with undergrowth. There had once been a, there had been a path there, but it was overgrown, and he had to clear the way. And he saw himself as a pathfinder of the Reformation. He discovers a vital truth in the New Testament, that we are declared righteous in the presence of a holy God, not by our works, not ultimately even by our faith, but by the fact that our faith lays hold of one who has wrought a perfect righteousness, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And His righteousness is technically, as we say, imputed to us. It's credited to us. And our sin is credited to Him. So when we say Luther is rediscovering the Reformation, uh, the doctrine of justification by faith, uh, we are also saying it's been lost. You don't rediscover something unless it's been obscured or lost. Dr. Arnold traced the fact, and I think this is very important to realize, is that there were those before Luther who knew the gospel. Um, it's very easy for evangelicals to have this idea that some evangelicals have the idea that, you know, uh, between uh, Paul or between John the Revelator, the book of Revelation, and the beginning of the Reformation, nothing happened <laughs> of any eternal value. Uh, the gospel was lost. The whole thing got overwhelmed by the Roman Catholic Church. One of the questions I often get is, when did the Roman Catholic Church begin? You know, didn't it begin around like 100, right after the end of the New Testament period? Well, no, not exactly. Uh, there were those who knew the gospel. The gospel was passed down. Uh, things begin to accelerate with problems after the fall of the Roman Empire, after there's a loss of biblical literacy. It's hard to imagine if this was the early church around the year 200, uh, only 15%, maybe 10% of the people in this room could read. The rest of you are illiterate. Uh, unless any of the women in this room came from the upper class, the aristocracy, 2% of the Roman Empire, none of you could read. And uh, Bibles were produced. There were scriptures available in and for congregations. When the Roman Empire falls, literacy plummets. And uh, literacy probably in the seven eight hundreds in Western Europe might have been around 2%. Many of the monarchs couldn't even read or write, and they would employ monks who could read and write for them. It's not surprising in such a context that you would start to lose gospel truth and gospel doctrines. Dr. Arnold did a very helpful job of sketching some of the early figures who held on to biblical truth. Uh, one could multiply that. Uh, I want to give you one example. Uh, I had three or four. Uh, he used two of them. <laughs> uh, he showed me ahead of time, so I kind of had a heads up. Uh, coming on second uh, can be sometimes you're, you're sitting there. I'm really glad he had showed me his paper before, so I knew what was up. If I'd been sitting there and be thinking, man, alive, I've got to scratch that and scratch this. But anyway, I've got one. <laughs> uh, I came across this. I, I have this interest in the interpretation of the Song of Songs. 
Um, one, I, I think one of the things that histor- historians are, uh, the Puritans called historians the Lord's remembrancers. I love that phrase. Where, where those whom God raises up in the church to remember. One of the great themes of Scripture is a theology of remembrance. Remember. Remember the great deeds the Lord has done, Psalm 105. Uh, the prophets. Remember what the Lord did for you when he took you through the Red Sea and gave you the commandments at Mount Sinai. Remember Lot's wife. And it's all over the Bible, a whole theology of remembrance. It obviously means that human beings forget. Otherwise, you wouldn't have this call to remembrance. And um, being a historian in the life of a church and the life of, the ev- of evangelicals, uh, it, it, over the years it's been a struggle. I'm, now I've been doing this for a long time and I'm finally comfortable with it. Uh, when I went to seminary, there really wasn't a category, you know. You can be a historian for the church. Well, you can be a pastor, you can be a, uh, a missionary, but there really kind of wasn't any place for historians. Uh, but we need them. And uh, we, ne- we need to remember, especially we in North America, we, uh, we have uh, a fascination with the present. It's all around us. Our culture is deeply interested in the present. The past, well, you know the phrase, it's history. <laughs> Uh, what that means, it's not, it's valuable. Man, it's dead, buried. What on earth can it help us? How can my great-grandmother, who hadn't got a clue about computers, help me when my computer goes kablunk? You know, or, or my car goes on the fritz, or the fridge is broken. But I, the past can, remember, can help us enormously. There are, they face the same problems, ultimately, we face. We're sinners. Our lives are marred by sin. Everybody in this room, his life is marred. Uh, there were believers who came before you. They had the same problems. They wrestled with them. And they can help you. Uh, we all will face death. Uh, they faced death. How did they stand and fast for the gospel in the face of death? And so on. And so we, we need to remember the past. And so... Um, I have an interest in uh, how the Song of Songs has been interpreted. Uh, I don't want to get off kilter here. And uh, I'm pretty convinced that the 20th century, we've got it wrong. 1900 years of thinking about the Song of Songs in one way, and then 20th century comes and says, hey, the whole way's wrong. Chuck it. Uh, that 1900 years was the Song of Songs is primarily about the Lord Jesus Christ and his people. Suddenly in the 20th century, no, no, it's a marriage manual. Or, and I won't get into any details like this, but even worse. And I've been shocked by gospel ministers, some of the things they have said that the Song of Songs is teaching. So here is an early Christian writer, Gregory Onissa. Uh, he's the brother of a great, remarkable theologian, Basil of Caesarea. Gregory was born 335. He died 395. He came from a remarkable family, three generations of believers. His, well, one of his grandfathers was a martyr. 
his other grandparents lost all their property. They were very wealthy, lost all their property in the last great persecution in the Roman Empire. He would become a remarkable theologian. In that fact, he became the, one of the key preachers the Roman emperors called upon regularly when uh, they needed somebody to preach on certain events. For instance, when Emperor Theodosius I's wife died in around 386 and her little daughter, one year old, died, they asked Gregory, will you come and preach the funeral sermon? Around 390, uh, a woman named Olympias, a very wealthy Christian widow, wrote to him and said, I'm, I'm, I'm reading the Song of Songs. Do you, do you have anything you can do to help me? And uh, so he said, yes, I happen to preach a series of sermons on the Song of Songs, and why don't I send them to you? Here's the second sermon, a part of it. He's thinking about the passage where the bridegroom, rather the bride, it says, I am dark and beautiful. Well, what's that mean, he says. Now, in this thinking, the bride is the church, and the bridegroom is Christ. And he has this fabulous discussion. He said, this phrase must mean, must speak of the bridegroom's measureless love of humanity. The bridegroom, in his love, clothes his beloved with beauty. He then says, what, what the bridegroom is saying when she says, I am dark and beautiful, she's saying this, Do not marvel that righteousness has loved me. Marvel rather that I was dark with sin and home in the dark because of my deeds. But he by his love made me beautiful. He exchanged his beauty for my ugliness. He transferred to himself the filth of my sins. He shared his purity with me. He made me a participant in his beauty. He who first made something totally desirable out of one who had been repulsive. That's the gospel. I, I was reading it for other reasons, and I couldn't believe this passage. This is, this is Martin Luther. That in, in the gospel, that the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the most beautiful of all beings. We don't normally talk that way. Uh, one, of the, one of the helps of remembering the past is if we went back far enough to the 18th century, we would find the language of beauty regularly used of God. I'm very thankful for recent worship songs and some recent theologians who are arguing that God is beautiful. And one of the reasons why this has dropped out of a terminology is because in the 18th century, somebody came up with the idea that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. That, that's got to be dead wrong. Because you would never say, oh, truth, it's in the eye of the beholder. Well, those outside the church will, but a Christian one. Goodness is in the eye of the beholder. No, 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 if truth and goodness have objective realities, so does beauty. The objective reality of beauty is the Lord Jesus Christ. God himself is Beautiful. The reason why any beauty exists in the world is because of His beauty. When we look on beauty in this world, this world is filled with beauty. It, we are seeing the hand of one who is beautiful. And this is a fabulous passage. 
what were we? Because of our sin, we were, we were really ugly and repulsive. And what has He done? He has so loved us, He has come and clothed us with His beauty. When the Lord Jesus Christ looks on His people, He looks on His bride, He sees a people of beauty. And that's why He loves us. He has made us beautiful. He loved us when we were not beautiful, but now He has clothed us with His beauty. But that's 4th century. I mean, Martin Luther, I don't know if Martin Luther knew Gregory Nyssa, but he, he could easily have picked that up. And so there were figures, all that to say this, there were figures before Luther comes along. There's figures in the medieval period. Uh, it, it, it's a difficult period for evangelicals. Uh, a number of, about a, two years ago, we wanted a course on medieval church history, the period from around 700 to 1400. And uh, we wanted somebody to come and teach it at the seminary. Uh, my academic dean said to me, uh, can you think of anybody? I came up with like three people. Out of all the church historians in North America, I had a choice of three. If we uh, asked somebody, hey, Baptist history, oh, they're coming out the woodwork. <laughs> you know, they're, they're a dime a dozen. Three people, medieval. It's a, it's a difficult period. But nonetheless, God has his people there. Um, uh, Dr. Arnold mentioned some, Thomas Bradwardine or Thomas Wittenbach. Nobody has heard of him. Uh, Jan Hus, the Czech reformer. John Wycliffe. Uh, Pierre Valdez. Uh, these were men who knew the gospel, who found the scriptures, preached gospel truth. But having said all of that, when Luther comes on the scene, Europe is dark. The Again, the, the sculpture that uh, Dr. Arnold referred to, the, the huge Geneva wall, it has eight figures, four central figures, who are central to the French Reformation, uh, and then uh, these eight other figures. Interesting, one of them is Roger Williams. If you know anything about the American Roger Williams, he's been inscribed in a more recent biography as one of the founders of America. Um, not sure I would go that far, but he's, a, he's an intriguing figure. And, uh, and that phrase that is there, post tenebras, after darkness, light lux. Uh, as the reformers thought about what God had raised them up to do, something remarkable had happened. They had been given the light of the gospel to distribute to Europe. And at the heart of that light is what we call justification by faith. So let me then turn to looking at the light of Martin Luther. Luther was born in 1483. He's born in Eisleben, E-I-S-L-E-B-E-N. Eisleben is a town in Saxony, in East Germany. And uh, his parents were, had come up from the lower classes, they'd been his father had been a copper miner. And by the time Luther's born, though, his, his father had become to own a number of copper mines. He was fairly well off. He wanted to make sure that his son would have a good education. And uh, in the early modern period, which is what we call this period after the medieval period, the study of law is beginning to pay wealthy dividends. So, 
His father's thinking, you need to become a lawyer. 1505, uh, when uh, Luther was 21, he had earned his BA. He came home for summer holidays. And he's on his way back to Erfurt in July of 1505 to become a lawyer. And a thunderstorm comes up. Psalm 147. And God blows. I gather it doesn't happen here. <laughs> and crystals and snow fall. He blows and it rains. I'm going back on Sunday to snow. <laughs> and I'll, I'll learn the, the reality of that. One, one, of the, one of our problems, incidentally, by the way, is we forget that. Every snowflake is commanded by the living God. Every snowflake. Uh, because I live in a place of a lot of uh, winter weather, uh, my, I spend a lot of time on the weather channel. You know, what's tomorrow going to be like, and et cetera, et cetera. And sometimes I forget that, hey, uh, all that weather, rain, snow, hail. I gather you get dust storms out here. I just didn't know that. Uh, and every, every little grain of sand in that dust storm is breathed into existence by God. God speaks, and that dust storm takes place. It's not just natural laws. There are natural laws. He's put them in effect. But don't for a moment think he's put them in effect and let them just run their course. He controls all of that. And this thunderstorm, he controlled. It comes up, came up suddenly. Luther's caught about a mile from the city gates. Uh, a lightning bolt comes down near him, throws him to the ground, nearly kills him. He's terrified, absolutely terrified. He would later say, I felt like I was walled around with death and terror. He did what he, what he was being trained to do in times of crisis. He cried out to the patron saint of minors, St. Anne. St. Anne is the mother of Mary, or the mother of our Lord. And uh, the medievals love to have names for everybody in the Bible. Uh, St. Anne was an important figure. Uh, she had gone through what we call the Immaculate Conception. She had been conceived without sin, so she might give birth to a son in a virgin manner, who also without, without sin. And uh, so St. Anne was the patron saint. St. Anne, save me, and I'll become a monk. Now, I think Luther must have been thinking about this before. I mean, he, he, like, uh, he, he must have been wrestling with a conscience, a guilty conscience. Two weeks later, Middle of July, 1505, he knocks at the door of the Augustinian Seminary, Augustinian Monastery in Erfurt. They were known as the Black Augustinians. I mean, these guys were hardcore monks. The whole medieval period, I'm going to touch on this at the end, the whole medieval period is a period in which uh, if you want to be serious about the gospel, you become a monk or a nun. That's... If you're, you're a, if you're a radical follower of Jesus, you know that book, David Platt, that's recently got Radical Christianity or Radical Christian. I mean, in the Middle Ages, somebody could have written that and the book would be filled with, okay, first thing you got to do, join a monastery or join a nunnery. I mean, nobody else can live a radical life. You get married, nunna. 
It's just it's radical Christianity. You know, I mean, you need to be sold out for Jesus. Celibate, fasting, living, giving your all in the monastery. Spending your time in prayer. And so Luther joins. He joins. He, he could have joined any number of uh, monastic orders. He joins one. I mean, these guys are strict. They're, they're hardcore guys. Uh, one third of the year was spent fasting. You get bread and water. As a novice, you can't smile. You go around with your head down. You're obedient. You're obedient to every older monk in the, in the monastery. Luther would later say, I joined the monastery to save my soul. His father was upset. Uh, he, he comes to visit him, and so he says, like, <laughs> what are you doing here? You know, it, remember, Martin, it is said you must obey father and mother. I told you to become a, a lawyer. Well, Luther said, oh, I was on the road, and the thunderstorm came up, and, and uh, uh, I was in danger of death. I cried out to St. Anne. She saved me. So what else could I do? And Luther's father's got this little interesting response. How do you know it wasn't the devil? <laughs> you wonder, here's a man who's prayed to St. Anne all his life, and he comes out with that. You'd, you'd think he'd be glad that his son has become a monk. He wasn't. There's very interesting things going on in the Middle Ages. 200 years earlier, he'd be thrilled. I grew up in a very strict Irish Catholic home. I had a granny who prayed that her, one of her grandchildren would become a priest or a nun. Uh, I don't think a church historian cuts the grade. <laughs> and I mean, anyway, so Luther becomes a monk. He, he'll now spend the next 10 years striving to be a faithful monk. And uh, he would go through the whole monastic regimen. And what that meant was a variety of things like fasting, all-night vigils, sometimes flagellation, whipping yourself. Um, at the heart of the monastic spirituality was confession of sin and absolution. And so Luther would go and confess his sins before he received the Mass. And uh, his uh, confessor was a man named Johann Stelpitz. And Luther would go, and as a Catholic I can remember this, you know, bless me, Father, for I've sinned. And when was your last confession? And then you tell him your sins, and then he absolves you and gives you penance. You know, as a young child, I, this is before I was uh, a teenager, you know, so, oh, I, I lied to my mom this week. Well, ten Hail Marys, you know, go home and say ten Hail Marys, or say them before you receive the Mass. Uh, Luther, Luther was, <laughs> he was serious about this. Um, Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. I was angry with my brother this week. Okay, well... Ten Hail Marys, and I absolve thee. But, and then Luther said, well, you know, as I was telling you I was angry with my brother, I was proud that I was confessing my sin. <laughs> uh, it, it's, a, it's a vicious cycle. Sometimes Luther would come out, and he'd remember another sin and go back in. I mean, Stelpitz finally got fed up with him. Luther, he, this, is, this is true. But Stelpitz said to him, Luther, why don't you come in here with a real sin? Like murder or adultery. Instead of all these little silly sins you're, you're bothered about. <laughs> but you know that passage in the scriptures? If you do not keep the whole law, one little sin will damn your soul. Why is that? 
because God hates sin. And not one of us can go into his presence with sin. Luther knows something very biblical. And so he's wrestling with this whole problem. Um, This would drive him deeper. He'd fast more. He'd stay up all night more. I was indeed a pious monk, he said. Kept the rules of my order so strictly that I can say, if ever a monk gained heaven through monkery, (laughs) it should have been I. Or... When I was a monk, I made a great effort to live according to the requirements of the monastic rule. Nevertheless, my conscience could never achieve certainty, but was always in doubt and said, you've not done this correctly. You're not contrite enough. You omitted this in your confession. The longer I tried to heal my uncertain, weak, and troubled conscience, the more uncertain, weak, and troubled and co- I continually made it. In fact, he said, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. He's a holy man. He's in a monastery. He's doing holy stuff. But he hates God. Another occasion. If I could believe God was not angry at me, I would stand on my head for joy. Now at the same time of all this, Luther is studying the scriptures. He's a biblical scholar. He's studying for what will eventually be like a PhD in biblical theology. Uh, never get the impression that Luther... Uh, did not uh, at this time, uh, he was not a profound theologian. He gets a teaching position after he gets his PhD at Wittenberg. And during the course of Wittenberg, in 1514, 1514, he teaches the book of Psalms. And he's teaching on Psalm 71. And he comes to these words, "In In you, O Lord, do I take refuge Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. It didn't make any sense to Luther. Righteousness means judgment. Righteousness is the holiness of God that hates sin. Luther Luther said, "I, I knew that when I, ungodly Martin Luther, stood in the presence of a holy God, only one thing could happen. I would be damned to hell. Even before his conversion, he knew, hey, there's no such place as purgatory. I mean, as a so-called Christian monk, at least he's going to go to purgatory, and everybody goes to purgatory gets to heaven eventually. It's going to be a few million years <laughs> before you get there, but you're all going to get there eventually. But Luther doesn't even consider there's a place called purgatory. Where he's going is hell. So how can the righteous, how can this author say, In your righteousness, deliver me. It doesn't make any sense. Righteousness means holiness, means judgment. How can it mean salvation? So Luther does, in the course of the winter, 1513-1514, he does a concordance study. And he comes to that great passage that our brother read earlier, right at the beginning, Romans 1, 16-17. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther would say, I was meditating on this. As I was, he said, I was knocking on the door of this text. And I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God. Namely, by faith. 
This is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. Luther had discovered that when you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's different words in the medieval uh, world for trust. I'll talk a little bit about this when we get to Calvin. The Latin word is fiducia, F-I-D-U-C-I-A. It doesn't mean belief only. It means trust. When you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you believe that his death on the cross was for your sins, there is this exchange that takes place. Your sins are taken by him. And his righteousness, not his divine righteousness, not his righteousness as God, but his righteousness as a human being is given to you and credited to you. So in the eyes of a holy God, you now are completely righteous. Now, there's a danger in that, and Luther will face that. But that is a tremendous, absolutely tremendous, liberating gospel. In the, in the medieval world, when I do good works to somebody, the reason I do good works to somebody is because it gets me credit. I need my good works. The more good works I got, the better, I, the more likely I'm going to get to heaven. I might get, if I do enough good works, I might get there directly without going through purgatory. Or if I do a sufficient amount of good works, I may only have a thousand years in purgatory instead of a million. So why do I do good works to you? Not because I really love you, but because I love me. It's helping me, not helping you. When you embrace the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you now can genuinely love others. You're no longer using them. The medieval model of spirituality, you're using other people. They're helping them is getting you good works. When you believe that you are saved by faith alone, you will do good works, no doubt about it. And we'll, I'll read a quote by that. But you don't need those good works to save you. You have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, faith in Him, faith in His blood. And you can genuinely love another. Other people need your good works. This world is a difficult world to live in. Brothers and sisters, we, we need each other. We need each other to help us through this world. We need each other to enable us to stand firm in the midst of the challenges and tragedies of life. The other person needs your good works. You don't need them. You can actually then genuinely act out of love. It's a tremendous rediscovery of the gospel that Paul preached and that was preached in the early church. Luther will eventually, as was already intimated, go public with this. Uh, in 1517, he'll issue what's called the 95 Theses. That sets him on a road. We don't have time to talk about that. Sets him on a road with a break with Rome. He will eventually be excommunicated. 
1521, January 1521, he'll be asked to give an account of his theology at a place called the Diet of Worms. It's spelled W-O-R-M-S. Do not pronounce it Worms. It gives you this kind of weird, you know, picture of a diet of worms. What, what kind of stuff is that? Uh, diet means parliament. It's the diet of worms. Luther will be asked to appear before the most powerful man in Europe, the king of Spain. Spain is the great power in Europe and the world at the time. They're beginning to build a mighty empire in Latin America and in the Caribbean. And uh, the Holy Roman Empire, Charles I, uh, at the command of the Pope, ordered Luther to come to Worms. He had all of Luther's books on the table, about 30 of them. Asked Luther, had you, have you written these? Actually, Luther came two days. The second day was when the real debate be- happened. He said to Luther, have you written these books? Luther took a close look at them. Oh, yes, I've written them. Well, the Pope demands that you recant all your errors in them and no longer teach your heresy. Luther said, well, I looked at my books. I got, they kind of fall into three categories. Number one, there are these books like The Freedom of a Christian. Uh, if you want to read one book of Luther, pick up The Freedom of a Christian, in which he lays out how it is we are justified by faith, and then how faith produces good works. Our faith is always active. It's a mighty, active, living thing that produces good works. He says faith in that book, it's got a, he's got a great image. Faith is like a marriage with the Lord Jesus. When I enter the marriage with the Lord Jesus, what do I bring? Luther's assuming what we have normally assumed, I know this has changed in our culture, that when you marry, what belongs to your wife belongs to you, and what belongs to you belongs to your wife, you know? And... Uh, that's been the normal way of marriage. I know people write marriage contracts now when they go into marriage. You know, okay, all this stuff is mine before I enter in. And if we don't make it in the marriage, it's still mine. Uh, that's not Luther's thinking. What, what, what do you bring when you come into the marriage with Jesus? You bring nothing but sin. That's all you've got. What does he bring? He brings his good works, his righteousness. And your sin is taken by him, and your, his good works are now given to you. It, it, it goes on at length. It, it's absolutely gorgeous. So Luther said, I've, I've written those sort of books. There's nothing wrong with those books. If the Pope would clean the church up, oh, I'd be happy to just write those sort of books. Then the second group of books are books I wrote against the Pope. Oh, the Pope's wrong. I'm not going to recant any of those books because he's made deep errors. And then the third group of books are the books written by theologians, people like John Eck, who was a great theologian of the day, who defending the Pope, and they were wrong to defend the Pope, and I'm not recanting any of those either. It was a very dangerous moment. Luther's there really by himself. Charles V is surrounded by Spanish guards. All of the nobility of Germany are in the room. Powerful, powerful men. One of the great things of the gospel is it gives a Christian, humble Christians, courage to stand in the face of the great ones of this world. We need to remember that. 
in the world in which we are moving. We have no idea what we will face in the next 25, 30 years. And we need to have the same empowerment that Luther had, a simple trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of Christ. And then he ends with this, unless you can convince me by Holy Scripture and reason, here I stand, so help me God. And the Roman Empire, the Charles, Charles V, the Holy Roman Empire, apparently waved him out. The Spanish guards think, hey, this is it. We're going to take him out and burn him. They begin to yell in Spanish to the fire. Everybody else in the room spoke German. I didn't have a clue what they were yelling about. <laughs> and Luther it walks out scot-free. He has rediscovered the gospel, and the gospel, the gospel has changed his life. And I want to give one little, little area where that, 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 that change impacts. Before his conversion, he was typical of many of the medieval monks. If you want to be saved, you've got to become a monk. If you want to know a blessed life, you've got to become a monk and go through all the stuff the monks do, what Luther called monkery. <laughs> and they're the only people who've got any chance of living near God. If you get married, <laughs> well, good luck. 1525, 1524, uh, a group of nuns, about 12 of them, escaped from a nunnery about 15, 20 miles from Wittenberg, where Luther was living, and they were smuggled in, out of the nunnery in pickle barrels. Uh, these, these nuns used to, must have eaten a lot of pickles, these huge, big barrels of pickles, and they're taken and smuggled over Wittenberg, and Luther, they're dropped on the doorstep of Luther's uh, church in Wittenberg, and Luther suddenly realized, oh, what am I going to do with 12 nuns? And so he starts to arrange marriages for them. And... Uh, one of them, though, he's got two marriages lined up, two great guys he thinks this nun would like. Her name's Katarina von Bora. And, uh, no, she's not interested. Right from the get-go, she kind of got her eyes on Martin. And uh, so it is in 1525, Martin marries Katarina von Bora. He rediscovers Christian marriage. It is a fruit of justification by faith alone. He rediscovers the fact that you can be a Christian a godly Christian who lives for the glory of God as a humble husband or wife. Everything changed for Martin when he married Katerina. Uh, somebody said to him later, so, so uh, what, what's kind of changed, Martin? Well, he said before he married Katerina, I used to have a bath once a year. <laughs> but not so. Katerina will not have it so. Justification by faith, the gospel. We have been given a precious, precious treasure. The Reformation is not over. And we, pre we are called to preach the gospel. The gospel that we are saved by the Lord Jesus Christ alone, who shed his blood for our sins. And that we lay hold of that, we'll talk about this tomorrow, by faith alone and by grace alone. And may God give us grace for the days in which we live. And maybe we remember 
the example of Martin Luther and draw strength from it. We do not live in his day. We're not Martin Luther. But we are called to stand for the truth that God gave him. Why? It is the truth of the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. May it be so for all of us. Amen.